Welcome everyone to today's Environmental Humanities Book Talk hosted by The Greenhouse and I'm Dolly Edgensen and I'm the host for today um, because we have Finarna Jörgensen is going to be our guest um, and he's going to be telling us about his book which came out with MIT Press just before the pandemic uh, began and that book is titled very simply Recycling. So I'll give it over to Finarna. Thank you. Uh, it's fascinating to be on this side of the table, uh, so to speak. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk about my book, Recycling. Um, unfortunately, I do not have a copy of it. Uh, they're all in the office, I discovered when looking around. But it looks kind of like this. Small, black uh, book published at MIT Press uh, in a series called Essential Knowledge. So they are intended and to be accessible books that present and analyze some kind of central phenomenon or concept. I was asked by MIT Press, uh, the editor in 2017, 16, 17, I think 17, if I could write such a book on recycling. No, 35, 40,000 words, very short book. I thought, of course, that should be fast. Uh, not a problem at all, I'll do it. Turns out to be not so fast after all. Uh, the shorter it is, the longer it takes to write, it seems like. But um, I did get a book out then in late 2019, as Dallas said, right before the pandemic. Most of the process of writing it came in the middle of us wrapping up our life in Umeå and moving to Stavanger. So it's also gone through some uh, uh, life changes to this book. Uh, and I was able to finish it by going it to the Rachel Carson Center in, in the fall of 2018 and had a good month of, of writing there. So the overall challenge that I had with this book was how do you write about recycling as this broad phenomenon, uh, you know, to say, I mean, everything there is to say about recycling without going into too much detail. Uh, and that is a pretty tricky uh, challenge. And also, I think some of the problems with it I've seen reflected in some of the reviews that have come. I mean, also, you know, regular people, readers writing reviews because people tend to get frustrated. They want the answers. No, does recycling matter? Uh, you know, what does it work? What is the best answer? How do we do this? Uh, so there's clearly this big need to know in the whole setting of recycling. People want to do something, but they don't know if what they do is good enough. And I mean, I recognize this question. I addressed it many times in my book and I also pushed back at it because I don't think it's necessarily, uh, I mean, it's an understandable question, but it's not a good one because there are no clear cut answers in this uh, I mean, phenomenon called recycling. Uh, and I go through then in the book, several different explanations of why it is that it's so hard to come to an answer, why the answer to this question depends on a whole lot of different factors. So in material and historical specificity. So that's one big question I grapple with. The other one that for me, I think is one of these interesting questions, uh, I think also in environmental humanities is how can we bridge then both in our actions, but also in our analysis, 
this gap between tiny individual uh, and, and in and of themselves insignificant actions with this immensity then of global environmental challenges that we are facing. So in a way, I mean, it's it's the Anthropocene wrapped in one little concept uh, or one little thing then how small things end up changing the planet uh, and the way it functions, some on design and some not by design. So those are like the things that I, I try to, to deal with in the book. I go through 10 types of ways. I have 10 short chapters. Um, so some are material, some are different types of ways. And I'm not going to go through chapter by chapter because I don't think that's the most interesting way to process this book. Um, but I mean, you can find in a way the usual suspects. I mean, there's paper, there's plastic, there's e-waste, there's glass and so on. Uh, and in each of these, I go into some of the you know, historical specificity about where this phenomenon comes from, how is this developed over time, how are people engaged with it. I do talk some about the materials also, you know, what can you do and what can't you do with, uh, with this type of, of waste. Uh, but I use each chapter to highlight particular kinds of uh, lessons, messages, key challenges. So one of the things that I show them is that recycling is just not one thing uh, as a concept either. It's an activity and something we do. Uh, it's a process that materials go through. Uh, so it's both material and cultural uh, and thus dependent on, on many things. So I would just read this very short section where I, I mean, I wouldn't say I define recycling, but I introduce recycling what it's about. So I say, Recycling is one of many concepts that refer to how we might deal with matter about to be discarded. We can reduce, reuse, renew, refuse, recover, repair, restore, or reclaim. Each of these represents one way of dealing with waste. All encourage us to rethink our relationship with matter around us. Recycling inevitably draws our attention to the questions. What is waste? What is useful? What is valuable? Who shall be responsible for this transformation? And what are the alternatives? So once you start thinking then about, you know, what is the best way to recycle something and does it matter? All these questions then open up uh, and, and you have to deal with them. So if you take this then these lessons that I get at in these shorter chapters. So one is that recycling is not a modern thing. It has a very long history uh, and got to, you know, delve into some medieval history. And even before that, we're talking about textiles, uh, paper, uh, metals, and so on that have been reused uh, and recycled for many years. And the distinction between reuse uh, and recycling is kind of blurred when you go back in time because they didn't necessarily break down the, the components and use it in other products, which is technically definition, but a lot of the logics were then established. And I think one of the key changes that has happened over time with recycling in general then, is that you went from recycling for scarcity, you didn't have enough of a material, to recycling for abundance that you had to deal with too much. Uh, and in that, change then there's this fundamental change of logics as well you know why and how you do something another thing i showed in through my chapters is how recycling is absolutely dependent on the sorting and movement of waste 
So you need to split it up in, I mean, not just as individual components, but also in, in different types of waste. And you need to get it to the right place uh, at the right time and the right amounts also. I mean, sometimes because the materials you're looking for are only present in trace amounts in uh, particular materials. So you have to process lots of waste in order to get it. Other times it can be that the, the economics of it all requires that you get things in the same place and process it in particular ways. It can be that you need to, you're dependent on very uh, cheap labor, which is why people ship waste all around the world. So there's a lot of movement. And the problem then with that is that waste is very unruly. It's very hard to pin down. So part of that comes through this movement. People send waste all around the planet. Some of this waste goes into control systems. Other types of waste goes out of these control systems because, well, it's cheaper. Uh, so there's this whole dirty underworld of, of global recycling uh, of materials. But also because there's some, uh, we say material agency here that metals uh, and I mean plastics in particular, let's take plastics as an example. So plastic will decompose. Uh, plastic lasts forever in some way, but it also breaks down and it's hard to keep in some of these systems. So we see it in uh, microplastics shows up in the oceans, in our bodies, in animal bodies, and so on. Uh, and it will gather up in uh, in the ocean in also larger pieces, like the Great uh, Garbage Patch. Also, it's, it's one example of that. So this is one of the problems. Then you know, how can you, in order to recycle, you need to contain waste. You need to control it which is really, really hard. Uh, because of that, I have argued that for the systems perspectives on waste that you can't think of this in terms of individual pieces of trash. In order to manage waste, uh, to recycle it, you need to get it into systems uh, of different types. Uh, here I build on uh, Debbie, Debbie Chakra, it's written as a quote I like a lot. She says, you know, that technological systems are one of the main ways that we take care of each other at scale uh, in modern society. So I think that's a very good one. So recycling, getting materials and waste into systems for processing is a way of care. Uh, and here we're, we're getting closer to this idea that I want to deal with in the book on recycling, not just as this technical process, but it's also a cultural one. So it's one of care. Another lesson that comes up, I'm going to not have too many of these now, but one is that nothing is inevitable. Uh, that the whole idea of disposability, that products, packaging, whatever, can just be discarded and recycled, is an idea that has been created. There's no inherent logics in the systems that we, we live in that makes it so. It is actually something that has been designed by uh, various corporations uh, and others. Another issue here is that recycling won't save the world. I mean, this is in a way the argument that it builds up to in, in talking about how you know, there are no easy answers here. Uh, what 
I argue, I mean, also towards the end of the book, and it's like recycling can be good. Uh, there's nothing wrong with recycling in and of itself, but it's much better to reuse or even reduce to not even create the problem in the first place because recycling is something that happens after the fact. It's a last resort. Uh, and because of that, what we see also, I mean, it's connected to this idea of created disposability is that many of the things that we do today in order to deal with waste through recycling and so on are fundamentally system preserving activities. So they are not something that really changes the problem that uh, deals with the problem at hand. So because of this, I think it's very important that we resist this urge to individualize recycling that the responsibility for solving environmental problems created in our societies is something that rests with you as an individual, individual consumer. If you just can recycle a little bit better, then this problem is solved. We should resist such uh, explanations, such understandings of how these problems and the solutions uh, fit together. So in conclusion then, a talk throughout the book about recycling as a symbol. The question is, has it become a completely symbolic action and thus pointless? Uh, I would argue not. Uh, while recycling cannot in and of itself resolve, I mean, I call, call the waste problem a wicked problem. It's not one that can be solved once and for all, like many other problems. It can only be resolved over and over and over again. Uh, and recycling can nibble away at some of these questions. But recycling as an activity is also a way of engaging with the problem uh, as consumers, as people, uh, as citizens also, of recognizing that here are particular ways in which our lifestyle generates waste that we need to deal with in some way. Uh, and what I find fascinating then being in Norway this country then has you know, super high-tech recycling systems. They're very convenient, very easy to do. You just uh, sort your waste, you put it in the right place and someone else takes care of it. Uh, the risk there is that, well, what happens becomes invisible. It's too convenient. It doesn't make you think about this problem. Uh, there's no friction, no resistance. So I'm actually in favor of somewhat more intrusive sorting systems where you actually have to do some physical and cultural engagement with your waste. So I call this waste-mindedness in the book uh, that we could talk a bit more about also. So just in the end then, um, if we think then of recycling as a political activity also, one that has political implications, is a way of engaging politically in these larger debates, we could see recycling as a form of citizenship, not as redemption or the, the, like, the solution to a problem or the absolution of the things you have done as a consumer. It's a starting point uh, and not a goal in and of itself. Yes, that should be it. Thank you very much, Fenarna. Um, so I was wondering if we would start with 
your process in writing this as a historian. So how as a historian do you take something that's so big, that's that's so many places, so much time, so many materials, and make choices about what to cover in a, in a short book? Yeah, uh, and that problem gets harder because it is so short. Uh, and part of what I looked for was the good stories. Uh, and they could come from many places. Uh, some are from secondary literature. I mean, I do use and refer to a lot of other scholarship in this field. I mean, that's used to be a kind of way studies. Now there's discard studies, uh, that's called. There's a lot of, of excellent work being done there globally also. Uh, which is another thing I try to really highlight in the book, to draw on stories from across the planet, not just the West. Uh, so there were a lot of that. I did also then do some from my own work. Uh, I have written a book before about uh, beverage container recycling, so deposit systems, bottles, cans. So there I can uh, kind of course say a lot, and I draw on that in aluminum and glass chapters in the book in particular. Uh, and then I actually did a fair amount of like new research also for the book where I went, I read newspapers, uh, like to, to trace down some interesting debates. So there's some, some historical components, I think, in all chapters, uh, but none of them are in any way complete histories. So there's, I mean, I wouldn't say it's anecdotal. That's not what it is. But again, it's about identifying these histories that illustrate well, that lets you discuss some of the key problems and while well, citing the sources and pointing to this other scholarship that people can go read more on also. So did you have any particular favorite stories or things that you found in that process? Did you said this really encapsulates some particular idea that I want to communicate? Well, there was one I wanted to do a lot more on, really. I think there's basically a whole PhD project in that, um, which is the what happened when Norway switched then from the FM band for their radio transmissions to a digital radio, to DAB, uh, which sounds, you know, all nice and good. It's like, oh, here's this new technical standard we can uh, introduce uh, to get better quality for our radio transmissions. It's digital. Uh, but it means then that all the old radios in use in Norway suddenly were unusable because they didn't do this in parallel that would send on this other band addition that they would actually stop all FM transmissions in Norway. Uh, and yeah, millions of radios because it's radios at least were, they're not so much anymore, but they were a completely invisible part, I think, of the media and information infrastructure of Norway. There were so many of them that they were just taken for granted. Everyone had several at home, they had them in the car, they had them at their cabin and so on. And then when all these became, uh, I mean, obsolete overnight, I mean, literally overnight, is really fascinating to see them these discussions that happen afterwards from uh, the, I think most people started all this debates, we're talking about economics of it. It's like, oh, it's so expensive to have to buy all new radios. And then after that, they started thinking about the, uh, the environmental cost of it all. It was more like an afterthought uh, after the, the economic part. 
But then there's also the practical parts of it. Like there are so many radios, what do you do with them all? Uh, so there's this whole rich story that I just scratch at the surface of, I think, in, in the, the book when I set up my e-waste chapter. So thinking about e-waste, I think that leads in well to Gabriella's question, which was about recycling rare earth minerals. So as we think about things like batteries and we all change to electric cars and all of our computer electronics, um, the importance of those materials continues to grow. And of course there's consequences of both the mining of those minerals, but also then the recycling and recovery of that. Um, and so can you say any more about how your idea of care comes in to that discussion? Yeah, because uh, that's that's a huge discussion and the care aspect comes in, in in many ways. So you can look upstream and downstream. I mean, those are two concepts I also refer to and develop some in the book. So if you have a product, you have a device that uses some electronic components. So the upstream is the production of uh, this, this product then uh, that uses particular types of, of minerals in order to function. Uh, batteries, magnets uh, are huge also, and different types of conductors and so on. Um, they are they're part of two big debates on, I would say, ethics, really. So one is about the, the labor that's being done. Uh, there's been plenty of stories of, well, actually child labor, uh, environmentally harmful uh, extraction uh, extraction in war zones. So you actually fund warlords uh, in doing it and so on. So there's that kind of ethical debate that has raised several concerns and have gotten consumers and organizations to put pressure on producers in order to reduce their use of these materials or find more sustainable ways of sourcing it. So, and recycling then becomes one of these ways. Instead of, of getting new virgin material, you can extract it from, uh, from old uh, devices. Excuse me. So, so that's one part of it. I know that many companies like Apple, for example, have used in their marketing a lot that we use less of these materials now. And, and that's partly because of this pressure. Um, so I mentioned then that you start recycling the components from, uh, from electronics in order to lower the environmental impact. That is, of course, also not unproblematic. And recycling in and of itself can be a very environmentally damaging process, uh, which you see in, I mean, all kinds of products in reuse of glass bottles, like the, the washing and cleaning of the bottles generate huge amounts of wastewater. Paper also generates enormous amounts of waste to uh, to recycle, and e-waste. Then, um, what happens with a lot of it is that it gets shipped around the planet to find a place where labor and often environmental legislation uh, makes it possible to extract the the metals in it. Uh, there are some horror stories. Some have some uh, hold to them. Some are perhaps exaggerated or not entirely accurate. But there are places I talk about in, in the book about uh, 
Agvog Bloshi, this, uh, well, basically a big garbage pile where 50, 60, 70,000 people live uh, and delve into the trash in order to extract resources. So you have places like that where also then electronic components are melted down for the, the different components for gold, uh, copper, and so on. By manual labor, by burning it, so which is on the one hand incredibly environmentally harmful for both the environment in general and for the, the bodies of the people doing this. At the same time, it is something that creates employment and brings money into uh, to places also, which means I mean, there's a lot of of debate over these uh, this form of reciting in the literature uh, and not necessarily any clear cut answers. But what you see is that as environmental legislation gets firmer in different places, the, the recycling tends to shift to uh, new places in order to happen. Yeah, so this kind of gets to uh, Aster wanting to hear more about waste mindfulness. So how, how do we do that? And, and how do you think the concept works? Mm -hmm. um, is it both, is it an analytical concept or is it an actionable concept, I guess, for society? Yeah, I think it can be both. Um, so I, I build actually on uh, Douglas Adams, the writer that many of you know. So he talks in one of his books about how you make something invisible. Uh, and that is by making become someone else's problem. And that is what's happening in a lot of these waste processes. You, you know, you take your bottle, you return it in the, the bottle recycling machine in the store or you sort your trash and you just put it in the right container and then it's someone else's problem you don't have to deal with it anymore so it becomes invisible uh, so what i want to get at then with this idea of waste mindedness is to open up this invisibility again to to make the afterlife of trash also visible because I think it does matter that people know what happens with trash and that there is no like magical away that they can go to. It always ends up somewhere and over time it could come back to become a problem for you or for other people. Um, and in fact, it has happened many, many times uh, before over the you know, hundreds of years and it will continue to do so. So one concrete example I, I use then in developing what this could look like is if you go in a way to the other extreme end, um, there's a village in Japan called Kamikatsu that was, um, they made a documentary there about the way they process waste. So this is a, a kind of isolated village uh, where they sort their waste in 34 different categories. So it's intended to be a zero waste city where everything is properly processed and, uh, and reclaimed. And what you see then is, of course, it's massively annoying for the people there because they actually have to consider, you know, is this something I really want to deal with? Uh, and yeah, 
the convenience, I think, or the lack of convenience of such systems is very much at odd with what is the general uh, say ideology almost of modern society, that things should be convenient. You shouldn't have to deal with it. We can outsource this to other people. There are, of course, arguments for doing so in that in such systems, you can have highly specialized technologies and people with knowledge to, to properly process things. But that is not the case with everything. Again, so you need to have some kind of, of also material literacy, I think. Just here in Stavanger, uh, we've had these debates and we've seen them uh, be, I would say, enacted in the super high-tech recycling plant down at, at Furus, where they have like this massive machine that can go through, it just opens up your trash bags, you just put it all in a conveyor belt and it will scan it, identify what kind of materials it is, automatically sort it and so on. Or so they promised at least in the, uh, the advertising for it. And I guess the people who sold it also did a convincing job. But it turns out that it's really, really hard to make it work uh, because waste is so messy. Uh, it gets, if it's not properly sorted, if it's not properly cleaned, it just gets all tangled up uh, and it's hard to maintain this machine also. So can you say, um, Johanna had a, a question about your idea of the symbolic aspect of recycling. So does that symbolic aspect, are you, are you thinking of that in a social, cultural level and, and how does it function? Yeah, I mean, it can be analyzed in many different ways, I think. So it can be symbolical in the way that it's a way of creating meaning for people who recycle. Then, and that may not necessarily be, I would say, good. Uh, it could actually be, in a way, this green illusion. It makes people feel good when they return their materials or their products for recycling and think that they have uh, solved the problem. But even so, it is a meaning-making process. So there is some, some symbolic aspect there. Uh, I talk more as about this. Uh, it's a way of engaging culturally and socially and politically with material and waste uh, and the, the problems it can create. I mean, that's more the level that I argue for. So again, recycling as if a form of citizenship, uh, a way of beginning to think about problems, about difficult problems also, uh, and reflecting on your own actions uh, through that. So, I mean, it can be very specific. It's like, do you keep buying bottled water when you go out or do you just bring with you some water in a reusable bottle when you leave home? Do you buy a new phone every year to get, uh, now the latest and greatest, or do you keep your phone a couple more years? Do you resist that kind of individualizing questions and instead organize politically to try to change the way industry is regulated? And I mean, there's huge differences globally uh, in these questions. I mean, Europe has a fairly strict, if not exactly perfect system for producer responsibility and whereas the US has resisted uh, that kind of interventions uh, many times that I know the best, I mean, through the deposit systems and bottle recycling. 
Well, I think that leads really well into Micah's question because she says it, it strikes me that there's several different levels at work from the nation state to the municipality, to the corporation, to the individual. So do all the different levels have to work together to be effective? Or are there certain levels of participation that can be effective without the others? You know, historically, um, do you see that happening? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question because you come down to this question of effective again. Um, so just like many problems are created by billions of small and, and in and of themselves insignificant actions, I think there is an effect that can be had from billions of small and insignificant positive actions as well. But I think in order to get maximum benefit from them, they need to be harnessed in some particular ways. This is why I speak for the systems perspective. And as all historians of technology know, I mean, systems aren't only technological, they are social, they are political. Uh, so they, they involve that. So yes, I do think you actually do need to involve quite a lot of different levels in order to, to create effective systems. Uh, you can, of course, do some things materially. I mean, there's a lot of, I would say, economically motivated recycling that is happening, that is having some effect on cleaning up and dealing with some parts of waste, particularly with materials that are valuable, uh, that have some material value. So aluminum, for example, it works fairly well. But I and many others would say that there's a... Uh, the danger in that is this idea of greenwashing that, that, well, we have recycling systems for this, they work. So we can just continue this way and producing more and more and more well, aluminum cans that we can deal with like 95% of them in Norway or 60% in the US or wherever you are. Uh, and because of the recycling for this material works, then it's okay. But you're still then with this logic then of, of well, non-stop consumption that I think is, is problematic when you're talking about recycling. So I was wondering then in that, and, and it speaks to Angela, Cassidy had, had asked more about this um, idea of care. Um, are there particular levels this individual versus corporation versus municipal where you see the care and i'm thinking here about the the crying indian you know advertisements right yep. so so you're supposed to care right you're supposed to cry that um that your bottles and cans end up not recycled um in in nature but that is then said to be an individual responsibility so if i care okay. about nature i would recycle my bottles and cans um so how you know can care really apply beyond the individual mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh i mean a good point so the the crying indian is i mean many of you will have seen it legendary uh advertisement that was created for Keep America Beautiful, which is on the one hand, you know, this large uh, organization that works with 
changing environmental values in people to make people care about the environment uh, in their particular actions. So they're about beautifying uh, America. That's all fine and good. They're also a incredibly powerful lobby organization for packaging and metal corporations in the US from the 1950s. And they have been brutally efficient in stopping uh, and removing environmental legislation all across the US. So I particularly looked at them within uh, the deposit systems where they have been very active, but also in other forms. So they're the classic example then of of arguing for individual responsibility for environmental problems. So if you as a consumer can change the way you deal with waste, then uh, we can solve these problems. In so doing, they are deflecting any kind of placement of responsibility with uh, the producers. So that's part of this very complicated story. So, so yes, I mean, they're certainly advocating care from individuals, but they are very much saying no care from the, the corporate side. That doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And we do also have examples of care from, uh, from corporations uh, and from organizations and from governments. I would say often as we see tied to individuals who uh, care personally and then work with their organizations and companies to do this. So, because that's why I think one of the things you, you see then in writing nuanced solid histories, tracing down these discussions and who are involved to see that business is also not like one monolith uh, that's all evil and so on. There are people who are cared or people who struggle with these, well, quite difficult situations. There are people who try to make money without ruining the environment. Um, but yeah, they're also dealing with very, very complicated logics. So. All right, Mehdi, you have a question. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm uh, about that argument that you build up to about uh, re reducing consumption rather than uh, resorting to recycling. I'm thinking partly that's maybe because some, uh, some waste is not recyclable. So I wonder if, if you in the book also kind of uh, think about how recycling as a practice also brings attention to things that are not possible to recycle. And um, a second question which, which is related to this is that uh, uh, I see a potential to connect this to the notion of pollution in general, or uh, because things like pollution is usually talked about in terms of emissions. So they create this different kind of uh, uh, approach around them. But I, I see a relationship there between waste and pollution. So I wanted to hear if you've dealt with this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first question then raises this interesting question, which is about recyclability. What does it mean that something is recyclable, that it can be uh, recycled if it wastes? And that is one argument that many companies use. Note that it doesn't necessarily mean that the product gets recycled, uh, but it can 
can be if necessary. I think one of the companies that's pushed this argument hardest in at least the last decade is Apple again, that they have fundamentally changed the production processes and the material composition of their products in order to be recyclable. However, it also means that their products are basically not repairable at all. So they are made for a very like short life cycle and then they go back to potentially be recycled. They only get recycled if they are returned through proper channels because recycling Apple products require very specialized equipment also. So, so there is that. Um, the question then whether they focus on recyclable products raises awareness of things that cannot be recycled as much. I mean, I haven't really seen much debate of that, and this is something that people really uh, care about. The question about emissions, uh, I mean, I think the way I'd like to address that is by, by again, thinking of this question of effect. It's like, yes, uh, both products and recycling creates pollution in different ways. And there are many different kinds of pollution, and there are many different ways in which we learn to know and think about and grasp pollution. Back in the, the especially in the 1960s, is this first wave then of uh, consumer environmentalism that, that really came in, particularly from the US then, was tied to one form of pollution like this. So visual pollution through littering. So it was all this disposable packaging created by the same people who funded Keep America Beautiful in practice. Uh, so empty bottles, uh, plastic wrappers, et cetera, et cetera that ended up in nature because people were more and more mobile. So they would bring with them these products uh, and they would throw them away because there was no deposit on them. And this awareness of this environmental problem through this visible littering did have a lot of effect then on the environmental movement. It did stimulate uh, environmental engagement of, of different types. But this kind of visible pollution is not the only one. Uh, the question with that is then how do you measure? What do you measure? So this then becomes part of this larger debate that talk about a little bit in my book on um, industrial ecology, you know, thinking about input and output into these production and recycling processes is something that has to be measured in different ways. And where you set the boundaries of what you measure. I mean, the system, what you include and what you exclude. There are no, I would say, self-evident ways of doing this. Uh, I did in my study of the beverage uh, deposit systems and always see how the actors on different sides very deliberately manipulated these boundaries in order to get the results that they wanted. Uh, so, there are methods for trying to measure these impacts, environmental impacts of the systems, but they are, they're very political and they can be used uh, for particular purposes. So there's no simple solutions there, but there is pollution, there is environmental impacts, that's for sure. 
All right, um, Greg, you have a question. Okay, um, so uh, thank you. I'm very interested in this topic. And um, I wonder, I mean, you've already talked about the ecological footprint of this a little bit, but what's like the crossover point where it may not be, or it's creating more problems than it's solving. So I think of, you know, I live here in Colorado. So I go to the store, I get my organic strawberries or whatever, they're in the little clamshell. That clamshell was, you know, picked in Argentina. I'm gonna put it in the recycling bin. It's gonna get sent to China to get, turned into pellets or whatever they do with them just to get it shipped back to Argentina. It seems like an awful lot of loop. Is it saving more problems or creating more problems with something like that? Yeah, um, well, it does create cheap products. I mean, that's the thing. And they are cheap because the environmental cost, so the cost of actually cleaning up has been externalized. It is placed somewhere else. There is a cost. Uh, to doing so. Uh, it's just not happening in the same time and place as the consumption of the product. So that's where I think, you know, is another one of these literacies uh, that, that need to be developed in this waste, uh, the way we engage with waste in general through recycling. Uh, and that has to do with knowing where your products come from uh, where they are produced, where they are assembled, where they go afterwards. And that's not just electronics, but I mean, even like, yeah, food products. Uh, you see the same thing with, you know, fish that's uh, caught in Norway, shipped to China for uh, filleting and then sent back to markets in Europe. I mean, because it's so cheap, or at least it used to be before Corona, uh, to send products fast across the planet. But it's only cheap in particular interpretations of the word cheap. Uh, so I think that's that's an important aspect to, to highlight. So, but it's, I mean, it's good for consumers if you don't think too much about it. And if your life, if your, I was always said lifespan, if your attention span isn't too long, you know, but these, these things have a tendency to come back and uh, bite you in the butt, so to speak. Yeah, and Aster added there, it's litter a seas, right? That's a so very being, good pun. Yeah. Very good pun. <laughs> <laughs> being literate with your litter um, and thinking through those things. And um, Angela had also um, commented about intended obsolescence. So that, of course, as you said, products are planned to only live for a certain amount of time in our modern society, which is a very radically different idea than what we have had. Um, you know, if you think culturally, that is that kind of um, attitude is completely different. So you do have these repair cultures then that grow up. Is there something there to be said about where repair intersects with recycling? Yep, absolutely. Uh, and I mentioned briefly, you know, how Apple products have been you know, they're good for many things, uh, but they are not repairable at all because in order to be fast and modern and sleek, they are basically glued together. So they're very tricky to to, uh, to repair them. Repair as a activity is also a skill that I think for many people have been lost. So it's not just a question of products being repairable. I mean, technically that they need to be 
put together in particular ways so that you can modify them. But it also has to do with having the competency and skill uh, of, of dealing with it. And that can be as simple as, you know, um, like mending socks or putting on buttons that's fallen off, uh, et cetera, with clothes. Uh, it ha- can be, you know, opening, can, opening up and soldering uh, a toaster to give it another 10 years uh, of life and so on. So those are, I think, the kind of questions that people have started to take seriously again now after uh, some time where people hadn't talked so much about them. Uh, I see that come up a lot around makerspaces. There are places where people think about how do you make things? How do you open them up? How do you understand how things work? And how can you use this knowledge to build things? So there's been a lot of, uh, in a way, repair cafes around makerspaces. Uh, here in Stavanger, we've also had some, some others like uh, at the museums, they've had repair cafes where uh, people could bring clothes or electronics or something that they needed people with the technical know-how uh, to fix and so on. So, but this is in a way a, a kind of generational knowledge uh, that's also been lost, I think, in particularly with the consumer, the consumer revolution that this idea of disposability is that, well, it's broken, let's just buy a new one. Then you don't get to practice the skills of, uh, of repairing it. Of course, some of these things can't be repaired by design. Uh, some are illegal to repair and modify. There's, uh, I know all these debates about uh, in the US about tractors. You know, farmers have a very long, tradition of maintaining and modifying the technologies they use because they live for a long time and they see a lot of use so people need to be able to know how to do it but modern tractors are high-tech electronic products as well as mechanical products so they have i mean locked down firmware just like a computer that can be very hard to modify. So there are, I've seen articles about people trading and using in a way illegal Ukrainian firmwares for their tractor, John Deere tractors and so on, which is very fascinating in a way, combining this kind of like cyberspace-ish hacker stories with, you know, solid uh, Midwest American farmers. I mean, that's, that's just such a fascinating combination, I think. So I was thinking um, as we wrap up that I would just ask about, well, writing a book like this, a book that is intended, I know we saw a copy of it um, at a museum gift shop in London. Um, you know, so it's it's intended to be um, not just for academics. Um, do you have any thoughts about that process that you'd want to share with others? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's very important. And that's one of the things that attracted me to this idea of writing, writing this book then, uh, that it should be accessible, not just in the writing and the way it's the content is presented, but the book as a physical product is also very accessible. It's cheap. Uh, it's like... $15, $16 now, uh, and also cheap ebook copies. Uh, 
they are intended to be read by many people. Uh, MIT Press has a huge distribution network also for these books. So they do place them in museums, as you said. Uh, I have not yet seen it in an airport bookstore, mostly because I've hardly been in an airport since the book was launched, that's very sad. Um, but yeah, we did see it in, it was in the Tate Modern uh, bookstore, fantastic bookstore, and they had a copy of that one. They had a couple of others in that series as well. So I did a stealth signing of the book, uh, Neil Gaiman style, I've learned from him, he uses to do that. So um, if I come across it in the future, I will do the same again. But I mean, it, it does matter, I think, also in, in that not just writing for your academic peers. I mean, that's important. It's part of this, this knowledge production, this discussion over ideas. Um, but you also need to be able to communicate these ideas to, to other people. So with this book, then I've done several different types of book talks uh, with it. And I mean, a few of like academic ones, but more where uh targeting the public so just uh, it was on friday i did a talk for the, the norwegian climate foundation they do like 15 minute lunch talks uh and i talked about recycling for them then there were 250 people who signed up for, for that 15 minute talk so and, and that matters i think that you can do uh things like this we did, uh, as you said, also the book launch at the recycling center, uh, the waste processing plant in town, which was fabulous. Uh, it was a good place to have it. I was later then invited by the, the local or the regional waste uh, association. They have their own uh, like professional organization where the people in the region who deal with waste processing get together to talk. So. I've also presented the book for them. So you then get this, these academic ideas. Uh, and I mean, there's been a lot of thinking about waste uh, in the field. And you get to discuss that with the practitioners in the field. I think it's quite valuable. I mean, like so many other things, they know many of these things from an entirely different uh, approach. You know, they know it practically, but they know the same things, but they don't talk about it in these ways. Uh, and on some things, you can actually then challenge them and stretch their ideas and vice versa. I mean, we can also get our own ideas to be challenged by meeting people who work with this. So I think that's all all good. Well, and I think it also is a, a good point not to just leave a topic like recycling, especially technology, to people who work in technology, Indeed. but instead to make a claim that the humanities whether you're in history or literature or religion has things to say about these topics and they, it isn't just a technological solution as you started yeah. out in the beginning saying. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, as a book, it draws on so many of the things that I have learned from being active in and, and running a group in environmental humanities. It also draws on, I mean, a lot of history there, just a lot of STS in the way I think about technology. Um, but I do also stress in a way the material agency uh, of the products that I talk about. I draw on, on literature of different types, not just academic, but also like fiction to, to see how people have talked about and understood ideas, but also to communicate ideas through. Uh, 
I, I mean, I also talk a lot about technology and, and use scientific literature uh, as well. So it's a very, um, yeah, disciplinary agnostic in that sense. I do not just think of this as a history book because there's only some, some of it that's history. Uh, well, great. Thank you so much for joining us, Finarna, um, and talking about your book, Recycling, which came out with MIT Press in 2019. Thank you all for coming. It was a pleasure to talk about it.